So that would be great. Um, just want to welcome you all again this morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here, as I've just uh, said earlier. And uh, if you are visiting with us, I hope you're enjoying your time with us. If you're joining us online, uh, great to have you with us as well. Um, I've been preaching through Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, for a little while now, and we've arrived in chapter 4 and verse 1, which we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, but we're going to read the first six verses to give us a little context. I'm going to read from the ESV this morning. Uh, if you have uh, another version in your Bibles, you should be able to follow it as easily, and the words will also appear on the screen for us. So, Ephesians and chapter 4 from verse 1 through 6, says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through and in all. All right, amen. This has been, uh, this, this part of the letter, this part of the letter is actually a turning point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For the first three chapters, Paul has exclusively been talking to us about what God has done. He starts off and he tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on for the next few chapters to set out exactly what those blessings are. Some of the highlights are he's made us alive in Christ and raised us up with him when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He's brought us back to himself. He's redeemed us. He's made us one in Christ. There's unity now. Uh, he's destroyed the barriers and the walls of division that were between us. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, a down payment of the greater gift, the fullness of the Spirit which will come uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul keeps going on and on and on about what God has done in these three chapters. And he also has two magnificent prayers that he prays. Um, he's praying, he's interceding for the church. He's praying that they will understand all of what he's saying, praying that they'll really take hold of what he's been telling them. And now at the start of what we have as chapter 4, obviously in, in the original letter it wasn't divided into chapters, but now at the start of chapter 4, um, Paul is going to turn his attention to the response of the Ephesian church. And as we've been reading it as well, the response of us as well. He starts off, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word therefore is key. That's why I'm reading from the, NIV, uh, from the ESV this morning, actually, because the NIV, probably one of the very few that don't do it, the NIV doesn't have that word therefore in it. But it's, it's key because it shows that what Paul's saying now is so connected to what he's already said. He's really saying, in the light of all that I've said about what God's done and who God is, here's the response that I'm calling for. And the next three chapters are going to be Paul urging us how to walk out our response to live our lives in the light of what God has done. How do we work? How do we uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling? And it's going to be very practical, an application. 
That tends to be Paul's um, pattern in many of his letters that he writes. In Romans, he has 11 chapters of doctrine about God, and then the last five chapters are application, what, how we respond. In Philippians, for example, Philippians 2, we have this amazing hymn to Christ where Paul uh, speaks about how Jesus made himself nothing and became a man, humbled himself to death even death on a cross, and how God exalted him uh, and gave him the name above every name, that everyone will bow down before him, every knee will bow. And then he says, therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He sets out this magnificent vision of God and Jesus, and then he says, in the light of that, this is what you are to do. So, as we go forward in this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to be looking at a number of very practical things that Paul is urging us to do uh, in response to what God has already done. He, some of these things would be like, be patient, put off falsehoods and speak truthfully. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. No sexual immorality, no coarse joking. Don't get drunk. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. And so it goes on. I wonder how you feel about this transition in the letter. I wonder how you feel about this change. Maybe you are someone who really loves doctrine. Maybe you, you really love hearing about what God has done. You just love hearing about who God is. When you hear about um, the, the verses that we've just looked at previously, how high and wide and long and deep God's love is, maybe you just think, oh, it's wonderful. It causes me to marvel. It causes me to worship. When we think about how God can do more than we ask or imagine, it stirs our faith. And maybe you are a little disappointed now when you come to some of these very practical, seemingly mundane things, uh, and maybe some of them are things that you actually battle with. Um, maybe you might feel a bit like Peter when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and he sees Jesus in his glory, and he sees Moses, and he sees Elijah, and, and he says, let's stay here. Let's stay here. Let's just pitch a tent. I don't want to go back down to the mess of my life. Let's just stay here. Sometimes we might feel like that. Or maybe you're a really practical person who's glad that we're getting into some, you know, action things now. Maybe for you it's all about doing the stuff. Uh, you, you sometimes like people to give you a good kick up the backside, up the butt, tell, tell you how you should be living. Come on, sort yourself out. Um, maybe you like uh, getting things done. You get a bit bored if it's all a bit too theological. Everyone's different. Everyone's going to be coming at this in different ways with a different mindset. But the truth is we need both. We need both because in our lives, what we believe shapes our behavior. What we believe shapes our behavior. We see that in society all the time, don't we? If you believe that life is mainly about providing a comfortable uh, situation for you and your family, having lots of great experiences, then you might invest lots of time into your career uh, so that you've got enough money to do that. And if you really feel that money is the important thing, you might not worry too much about how you deal with other people and who you trample over to get that money. 
If you think that family is the most important thing, then actually your decisions that you make and how you live your life might reflect that. Maybe you won't be focused so much on your job and your career. Maybe you'll spend more time with your family, doing family activities, maybe less time at work. If sports is the most important thing in your life, then that's where you're going to spend your time and your money. If you think that life here on earth is all that there is, and it's short, and it's all about how much enjoyment and pleasure you can get from it, then actually when you get towards the end of your life and there's more pain and uh, you've seemingly lost a lot of that joy, it makes sense to you to medically assist uh, the end of people's lives prematurely. How we act is shaped by what we believe. We can give many, many examples. Equally, if we say we believe something and it doesn't translate into how we live our life, actually, we can question, do we really believe that? You know, if we say we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe that God is in control of our lives, but then we panic every time some crisis happens, we might think, well, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Our actions have to flow from our beliefs. Now, to those of us who are involved in leadership in the church, we have to remember that. We have to remember that the way people act comes out of what they believe because it can be really tempting. I just want to be honest here. It can be really tempting as a leader to try and pressure and persuade people to behave in certain ways when it comes to church life. Because there's lots of things that, as church leaders, you think, all these things need doing. All these things need doing if the church is going to be effective. There's many roles that there are for people to serve in. There's financial commitments that maybe we think, oh, we need people to give. And so leaders can slip into being quite manipulative sometimes. That's always the temptation because you can think, well, I can... I can I can persuade people, I can pressure people, I can charm people, I can get the job done. So we might put pressure on people to give more or to serve in different areas. And as a leader, I don't want to do that, but I'm aware that it's a temptation because there can be a number of things that I get frustrated about. Right now, um, I, would, I would say I'm aware of so many different areas of church life where we need strengthening, and I can... Can, I can ask people, will you serve in this area? Most of the time, I would say, every five people that I ask, I would get four no's, maybe one yes. So it can get a little frustrating, and I have to really resist the temptation from crossing that line to manipulating people and pressuring people and making people feel bad for saying no or whatever. Now, I hope that I never do that. If I do, you've got to tell me because I'm aware of these temptations. I'm not, I'm not like confessing that I do it, I don't think. <laughs> but if I do, we want to hear it, because that isn't a good way to deal with things. Of course, if you take that sort of lead leadership to an extreme, you get cults. Uh, but sadly, there's a lot, of, a lot of organizations, a lot of churches where this kind of pressure goes on. The thing is, if they don't come from an internal conviction, if what we do doesn't come from an internal conviction, if it doesn't come from belief in what God wants, in who God is, then anything's just going to be temporary. Because we might serve for a while, but then we grow weary of it, and we back out. We might give some, but then we kind of feel a bit like, oh, I didn't really want to do that, and then we, and then we stop giving. 
And then when the pastor leaves the church, or when we move on, actually nothing in us has really changed. We just go back to how we were. Because maybe we were just doing it to please someone, or because we felt some sort of pressure. That's not how we want things. We don't want, we don't just need doctrine and theology and, and no outworking of it. It's no good just talking about theology. And we don't just need people telling us what to do. That's just the law. That's the legalism. It doesn't work. What we need is action coming out of an understanding of who God is, what God has done. And that's what Paul is going for here. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He put those three things together. Do you see there? He says, I am the truth, but I'm also the way and the life. The life we live flows out of the truth that we believe. And Jesus came into the world, and he was a teacher. He was teaching people, not just standing in front of people like the Sermon on the Mount, but he would teach people as he was walking, as he was in people's homes, as he was with his disciples. All the time he was teaching, but there was always very practical application to it as well in the way his disciples lived. And then we see that translate into the early church as well. It says the, uh, in Acts 2, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word literally means they glued themselves to the teaching of the apostles. But then we see it was outworked in very practical ways. It was outworked in their love for each other, in their care for each other. People selling property, giving to each other as they were in need, making sure people were cared for if they were widows. We have the teaching and then the outworking. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what teaching is for. That's what the Scripture is for. It's so that we may be equipped for every good work. It's to equip us in our lives. How will we do the good work God's called us to do? By knowing and acting on Scripture, by following the playbook, as it were. And you get that in certain sports. You get playbook in certain sports. Now, for example, football. Now, I don't know a whole lot about football. Joe, I've heard him even give this example before. He'll give it a lot better than I would. But football has a playbook. There's a playbook, and there is uh, someone having a look at the playbook. And if you join a football team, you have to know the playbook. Because if you don't know the playbook, well, you're going to go out, and it's not going to go well for you. You're going to be, where am I supposed to be running now? What am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be blocking someone? I'm kind of making this up. But, um, <laughs> but you've got to follow the playbook. It doesn't mean you're going to win every game if you, uh, if you, if you do that. Uh, it doesn't mean that every play is going to get the results that you hope for. But if you don't know it, and if you don't act according to it, you're not going to have a whole lot of hope in the game. Very similar to a, a sport that I know a bit more about than football, but maybe you don't, which is rally driving. Rally driving is, uh, is, is very popular in, uh, in Europe and uh, and, and there, they, they've got cars which are being driven at high speeds through very narrow tracks 
wood on each side, there might be fog, there might be snow, and the driver is going like 100 miles an hour, and he's going, you know, 150 kilometers an hour, he's going through all sorts of terrain. And he's got a guy next to him, so you've got the driver there, and you see the guy next to him, he's the co-driver, and he has got the equivalent of the playbook. I think they call it um, the pace notes, the pace notes. And what he's doing is he's continually calling out what's coming up next. Okay, down to 80, you're going to have a sharp right, and then you're going to go up to 100, and you're going to go straight, and then he's continually calling out what's coming next. And the driver is just listening to him and reacting to him. He's not just getting to the point and thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? He's going, and sometimes I've seen them doing it in fog, and they can't even see anything, but they're listening to the pace notes. They're listening to what's being told uh, them fully reliant on the book. Now, we have our own playbook, but it doesn't mean that the Bible is just simply a list of things that we've got to do. We put a strong emphasis in our church on living under grace. It's not about rules. It's not about laws. In fact, the New Testament tells us we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. And as we get into these chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, week by week, it would be very easy for us to slip into seeing them a bit like the Old Testament laws because, you know, there's just a, a number of different things that Paul is encouraging us to do. Of course, the Old Testament says, be holy as I am holy. So there's truth there, God is holy, and there's application, be holy. And yet, we know the law of God didn't make anyone holy. It couldn't make anyone holy. In fact, the law of God showed people how far from being holy they really were. Some of the time, the law even provoked people to sin. I don't want to be told how to live. I'm going to do the opposite of what I'm being told to do. We, we, if people tell you not to do something, that's often the very thing that you want to do. So how is what the Old Testament said any different to what Paul is getting into here? Isn't it just the same thing in a different outfit? When we hear people, when we hear Paul say things like, wives submit to your husbands, for example, doesn't that cause something to rise up in some of us? What, what are you talking about? There's that reaction to it. And how easy is it for us anyway? Let's face it, it's not easy. Husbands, how are you doing at loving your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church? It's going well? Maybe not. Kids, how are you doing at obeying your parents? No problem. Squeeze. Parents, how easy is it not to exasperate your children? We can think the Bible teaching is good, and sometimes we might think that it's not, but we can think it's good and still leaves us thinking, how can we do that? It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. We might just come up with excuses. Well, I would obey my parents, but they just keep asking me to do completely unreasonable things. I wouldn't exasperate my kids, but they're really exasperating. <laughs> Honestly, it can seem as we get into some of these things, and I'm, we're just looking at this before we get into it because we need to understand it. It can seem like these things that we're coming into are just a New Testament version of the Old Testament law. And then we just feel like totally helpless. Or we feel, oh, we just feel bad about ourselves. 
And the sad thing is that for many Christians and many churches, that's kind of what they settle for. It's like these are the expectations. Well, we're not gonna, we know we're not going to live up to that. We can't live up to those expectations. So people just pretend. Or they just get disillusioned with it all. And they walk away. Let me tell you, that isn't what I'm saying. And that's not what Paul's saying. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he was horrified that people were going back to the law. He says, no, 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 no. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm. Don't let yourself be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. So Paul isn't wanting the Ephesians or any church or us to be under this burden and this yoke of slavery. Oh, this is what we've got to do. So what is the difference? Well, first of all, we can see that there's a difference by what Paul says. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He's not commanding them. He's not commanding them. He's urging them. He's exhorting them. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it was kind of print on a page, words on a paper. You read the commands, or you hear them, and then you try and find something in yourself to obey them. You've got to summon it up through your own resources. But it doesn't work. It's no good. Seeing what God wants us to do, even agreeing it's good, we just get, we're just like, oh, we just get grumpy and irritable about it. We're fallible. We can't do it. It's just like people can't keep New Year's resolutions when they make them. In fact, people are beginning to realize this about New Year's resolutions, and now they're calling them New Year's intentions. Um, it's true. New Year's intentions. It's like, okay, we're not going to keep, we, we know it's not going to work. <laughs> this is our intention. That's not what the New Testament is about. It's not just words to obey. It's word and spirit empowerment combined. It's the Word of God and the empowerment of the Spirit combined. And Paul has been telling us this time and time and time again in his letter, that we have the power of God at work in us. That's what we saw just a few verses ago. God can do even more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Angela was encouraging us this morning and saying, you know, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need the filling of the Spirit. Let's pray that God comes by His Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1, he says, you were marked with a seal after you believed the promised Holy Spirit. Well, how does he know? Well, he knows because he was there. He went to Ephesus, and we read about it in Acts chapter 19, and he saw people in the church, but he saw a distinct lack of the Spirit's power. We know that because he asked them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they were like, oh, what are you talking about, Paul? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, Paul knew that, and he, he told them about it. And uh, there was no sign of it in their lives until that point. So they received the Spirit. He laid hands on them. They received the Spirit. That's how Paul knows he's re they've received this deposit. You receive that. So in chapter 5 of his letter, he can say, go on being filled with the Spirit. Again, that's what Angela was saying. Let's go on being filled with the Spirit. Let's keep on drinking of the Spirit. That's what we need. Maybe some of us this morning didn't realize that there was a Holy Spirit. Maybe you thought the Christian life was just about really trying your hardest to live a good life. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. There's a Holy Spirit that we can receive who gives us 
power, gives us power to live the Christian life. And if you didn't know about that before this morning, just as the Ephesians didn't in Acts chapter 19, you too can be filled with the Spirit this morning. We can lay hands on you, we can be praying for you, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Please ask someone to pray for you if that's the case. Otherwise, you're just going to be living a life where you keep on trying to do the right thing and you keep on failing. As we keep on drinking from the Spirit, we'll become more and more like Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell and 3,000 people were filled with the Spirit. And as I said, they began selling property, giving to people in need. All of these things were laid out in the Old Testament law, you know. God had laid out these laws. This is what you should do to make sure you care for those who don't have things. You know, give this amount of your income. Uh, make sure you uh, don't, you know, everything reverts back. Um, all property reverts back after a certain number of years. All of that. It was laid out in the law. Do you know what? There's no evidence that it ever happened. Because it, there wasn't spirit empowered. But yet, the spirit of God falls on Pentecost. People start doing it. They start doing the things that were laid out in the law because the spirits of God's at work and people's desires change. But if that's the case, then you might say, okay, so Paul knows that they're filled with the Spirit, so why does he even need to urge them to live a life? Why does he even need to tell them what, what they should be doing? Surely it will just happen automatically. We get filled with the Spirit and automatically things happen. Why is he exhorting them? Why is he urging them? It's a good question. Well, the spirit that we receive is a deposit of what is to come. It's like a taster of heaven. We receive some of the spirit, but there'll be more. It's a bit like when you're having your, your, your Christmas meal. You might wander into the kitchen. You can smell these amazing smells, and you say, oh, wonder what we're cooking there, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll just get a little taster of something. Oh, I'm just going to try that. Mm, amazing. There's a bigger meal to come, but you're just getting a taster of it. We're just getting a taster of what heaven is like with the Holy Spirit. He's a deposit, a deposit of what is to come. There's going to be far more. When we're in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any more need for urging to live certain ways. There won't be any more need for exhortations because we're not going to be subject to the temptations of this world anymore. We're not going to be subject to our fleshly desires. We're not going to have the devil tempting us in certain ways. Other people aren't going to be living lives around us which aren't godly and which we get tempted, well, I'm, maybe I'm going to live like they live just to fit in. I don't want to be different. We won't have these bodies which would rather sleep than pray. We won't have these bodies. We won't have these bodies with, with, with its lusts that cry out to be satisfied. We've got to realize that while we have the power to live differently when we're filled with the Spirit, to live as Christ wants us to live, we're still going to be in a daily battle. We're still in a daily battle. If we think that we love Jesus and we're filled with the Spirit and suddenly all temptation is going to be gone, we're going to or that we're going to just live godly lives with no effort at all, actually, we're going to get very disappointed. And we'll get disappointed in God. We'll think, hang on, I thought God was going to stop all these things. 
I thought he was going to take away all these desires. I thought he was going to take away these temptations. It still seems quite a battle. It still seems difficult. Oh, well, maybe God doesn't love me as much as he loves other people. Maybe, maybe I'm not good enough for God. We get into all of this stuff. In the end, we get disappointed either in God or get disappointed in ourselves. God doesn't take away those temptations. We still have to face them. We still have to battle them. Sometimes it's good that God doesn't take things away, that we ask him to take away. I remember praying for someone once who had high blood pressure. And I was, pl- I was praying with someone else. We were laying hands on this person, praying uh, for their high blood pressure. And the person who I was praying with said, Oh God, will you take away his blood pressure now? <laughs> and I'm just like, mm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> kind of needs some blood pressure. Let's just lower it a bit. That's a prayer that I'm glad God didn't answer. God doesn't always answer our prayers. If we pray, God, take away this temptation that I'm facing, actually, I mean, I'm not saying he can never do it, but most of the time he doesn't. Most of the time we still have these battles to fight. There's a battle to be fought, even if we're filled with the Spirit. Some worship songs can sometimes imply that, you know, we're filled with the Spirit and suddenly that's all we've got to do. We've just got to relax into God, let God take control. It's all going to be fine. Trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do things in us. There's truth, but it's not the whole truth. If that were the case, Paul wouldn't be urging the Ephesians, come on, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. We're free from the law, yes. We're full of the Spirit, yes but we still need exhortation. And urging people to live godly lives isn't putting people back under law. It's different. And maybe the difference is, is, is not being all that clear, but it's different. Yes, it's true our desires will change. Yes, it's true that we'll end up doing things that we didn't even want to do before. Yes, it's true that, that the sin that we used to taste so sweet will maybe start to taste a little bit more sickly sweet now and a little bit more unpalatable. But whilst we still have these lusts and desires and drives and temptations, we need to be exhorting and encouraging and urging each other to live godly lives because our body is still lazy and the world still assaults us and Satan still tempts us. Maybe we all need to get better at urging and exhorting and encouraging each other in living godly lives. Paul is unashamed in it. He says, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So as as church leaders, you'll find that we do exhort you and urge you to different things. We urge you to gather together to worship Jesus and to encourage one another when you do. We urge you to be part of a life group so you can work out all of these things in relationship together to strengthen each other so that you won't be isolated, you won't be picked off by the devil. We urge you to join us to pray together and we urge you to pray and read the Bible on your own. We urge you to use the gifts that God's given you to strengthen the whole body. We urge you to give your time and your money wholeheartedly, generously towards the work of the church. We urge you to get involved in what God's doing in the community and get involved in what God might be doing in the renovation of this building for his glory and the use. As we get into planting churches, we'll urge you to get involved, whether it's going or staying. It's not always easy. 
As leaders, we have the responsibility to fight the temptation to be pressuring and to go beyond urging, beyond exhorting, to guilt people, to lay down the law. We don't want to do that, but it's biblical for us to urge and exhort those of you who God's given us to disciple. And as leaders, we need to be careful to live the way God wants us to live as well. We can't be hypocritical about that. We can't say one thing and do another. When Paul said, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, he's not saying it so they'll go, oh, yeah, Paul's a prisoner. Oh, I feel really sorry for him. He's not, he's not laying on guilt for them. Well, I can't do it. You've got to do it. Ooh, I suppose so, yeah. You know, he's saying it because he's modeling it for them himself. He's been taken captive by Jesus. He's holy Christ's. And Paul often urges people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He's urging us to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. We've been called to something. I've spoken before about this calling that we have. I, I gave the analogy of a, a sports team that you might be chosen for a sports team. Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've been chosen by going through tryouts and you get selected. Okay, well, what are you going to do? You've been called. You've been chosen. What are you going to do? Well, of course, you're going to play. You're going to play if you've been chosen. You've got the call. You respond to the call. And we have been called to be holy and blameless in his sight. We've been called to be one who's part of the church, through whom all the manifold wisdom of God is going to be revealed to the, and made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We've been called to be involved in God changing the world. And that's what living this holy life is about. You know, all these things that we're going to get into, it's not about being a good person. It's not so we can say, oh, I'm really moral. I'm really nice. I live in a really good way. Just think about what Paul's passion is. Obviously, Jesus. But beyond that, what's Paul's passion? Paul's passion is for seeing churches planted, established, come to maturity around the world. Paul wants to see Christ glorified in the nations. His passion is for those who are still unreached, to bring the gospel everywhere in all the known world. So you'd expect that that's what he's going to be talking about in his letters. Oh, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and this is what I'm doing, and come and join me, and all of that. That's, that's, he hardly talks about it at all. He hardly talks about it at all. His letters are all about, okay, don't lie. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't steal. Don't say things that are unhelpful. Be kind. Be pure sexually. Don't make dirty jokes. Why is Paul concerned about all of these things? Paul's, Paul should be thinking about mission work and all of this. Why is he worried about that? Why does he say, oh, this church, there's two people who are arguing with each other. Just get them to sort it out. Why does Paul care? He's not just looking for nice people. Paul's looking for a glorious church. He's looking for a church that is going to display the character of God to the world. He wants a community of people who love one another, who treat one another as brothers and sisters, who forgive one another, who are patient and self-controlled, all of the fruits of the Spirit on display so that those looking in will see and know we are Jesus' disciples. We're Christ's body here on earth. That's what Jesus himself said. People are going to know you're my disciples, that you love one another. It's all of this nitty-gritty, very practical, very day-to-day -day stuff which is showing the world 
what the church is, which is showing Jesus to the world. So God initiates all of this with us. But there's always that human response. We can't afford to have bad attitudes towards one another. We can't afford to be disunited, acting on ungodly ways with one another, because there's so much at stake. There's, there's a lost world that we're reaching. It's so much more than just being a good person. It's the glory of the church on display, showing God's manifold wisdom. And we have to work out what this means for us. I long for us all to see it. I long for us all to act on it. So that's why we preach as we do. That's why we keep preaching as we do. We keep preaching the truth of Christ. We keep praying that God was going to do something, that we'll have our eyes open to it, that we'll understand how wide and long and high and deep the love of God is, that we'll be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, and that we're going to act on these things, and we'll have the Spirit empowering us, because that's the church that God wants us to build. That's what God wants us to do. Paul grasped it. It changed his life. It changed his life. He gave up everything for it. He had so much, he said, it's all garbage. It's all garbage now. It's like the parable that Jesus told of the pearl of great price. He said, when someone sees that pearl, they said, wow, it's so amazing. I'm going to go back. I'm selling everything else. Selling everything else. Everything's, everything's useless. Everything's worth nothing compared to this amazing pearl. Paul's living that way. He's got a magnificent obsession. He wants to live for Jesus he wants to build a church for God's son. He's aware Jesus is coming back for a bride. He wants her to be beautiful. He wants the church to be ready. He wants to show principalities and powers, a church living holy lives who love God more than anything. He wants to change the world by the power of the gospel. He's working hard for it. He's on the go all the time. He says, oh, I've done everything I can here. In this, in this province, in this area, and I'm going to Rome, and then after that I want to go to Spain. He's completely sold out. And he says to us, I urge you to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you've received God, if you've received Christ into your life, maybe you received him this morning already. If you've received Christ, that's what you've been called to as well. Jesus has stopped by you and he says, come, follow me. Follow me. Walk out your life in a manner worthy of the calling that I've called you to. And so there's an implication on us. We can't just go our own way. We can't just follow him or say we follow him and then follow what others are doing. But that call is coupled with the power which enables us to do it. So as we head on into chapters 4, 5, and 6, actually we're heading into a great adventure. Maybe you're a bit nervous as we head in. Maybe you're looking ahead and thinking, oh, I don't know what that's going to be like. Listen, God's about changing us. I believe we're going to head into some things which will change our lives. We'll be changed people. Do you believe that? I believe we'll be changed people. Our lives will change so that the great call on our lives works itself out and the world will see a people, a church, who are witnesses of Jesus. Why don't we pray together? Let's stand, shall we? I'd love to pray. I'm going to invite Tim and the band to come back up.
and just lead us in one more closing song. But Father God, I just want to pray that we will grasp this. We will grasp all that you've been teaching us as we've looked at Ephesians, as we've looked at other things, as we've beheld Jesus. Lord God, as we look at you and we see who you are and we see all that you've done for us, Lord, we're not trying to pay you back. We could never do that. We could never pay you back. Lord, we're not doing it because we just feel, oh gosh, I guess we ought to. Lord, we want to have our lives changed because you've filled us with your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us again. Fill us now. Fill us daily. We need your power. We know we face these temptations. We know our bodies tell us they want to do something completely different to what your Spirit tells us. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to keep urging each other to live out godly lives for your glory so that we might be a church that displays your splendor to the world. That's what we want, Lord. That's what we want is for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.